0: Well, good morning, family. Why the Bible? Why why do we even study and look at the Bible? I mean, why aren't we talking about the Koran today? Why why are we not looking at the sacred texts of Buddhism or Hinduism? Why do we hold the Bible in such high regard that we would study it and look at it every Sunday? There's a lot of answers to that question. One of which is simply prophecy. Prophecy that, that, that thousands of years ago these guys would foretell future events and, and we can read about them in the Old Testament and watch it come true in the new testament there 's no other collection uh, on planet earth uh, of prophecy like there exists in the Bible, and, and much much less that uh, prophecy that 's come true, and so the Bible stands above all other sacred texts just because of prophecy in fact Jesus fulfills over 300 Old Testament prophecies in the New Testament. In fact, there's very specific prophecies that that guys are writing down hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus even walks the earth, talking about where Jesus will be born, where he will grow up, where he will escape to, who his descendants will be, that his mom's going to be a virgin. I mean, very specific stuff. And here Jesus comes along and fulfills these prophecies. I want to talk about one of the last prophets in the Old Testament. His name is Malachi. Malachi, if you're Italian, we will give you that. Um, That's a terrible joke and you laughed at it. (laughs) But he writes the last book of the Old Testament, four chapters of prophecy that will come to pass 400 years later when Jesus walks the earth. And Malachi, I think, is just interesting because his name, Malachi, means the prophet or means God's messenger. And so some people will say, well, that's probably a nickname. But most scholars just say, no, that's probably his name and it's no coincidence he grew up to be a prophet. It's kind of like if my son Mason grew up and decided to become a Mason or if my son Parker decided to go into the valet industry. I mean, that would just be interesting. (laughs) Interesting. And so so I don't think it's a coincidence that God's messenger has a message for God's people. And in all books of the Bible, there's kind of this tone that God has. Sometimes it's a very loving tone. Sometimes it's a very comforting and peaceful tone. In the book of Malachi, the tone that God has for his people, it's like a dad yelling at his kids. And you may say, well, a father should never yell at his children. If the house is on fire... Dads, you should yell at your kids, get up, get out. And there's a sense of urgency in Malachi, a a sense that there's immediate danger that you need to get up and do something different than what you're currently doing right now. You see, the problem is when Malachi writes down this prophecy, the people, the Jewish people, well, 100 years prior, they were in what was called the Babylonian captivity The empire of the Babylonians had captured them, had destroyed their their land and their town and their temple, and had taken those people to Babylon as captives. And they cried out to God, God, free us, deliver us. And God does. And so now they've been back in their land for a hundred years. They've rebuilt their land. They've rebuilt their capital city of Jerusalem. They've even rebuilt the foundations of the Lord's temple. And so now God's people are thinking, well, we've done all this. So surely the Messiah is coming any day now. He'll probably be here tomorrow. Surely, God's blessings are just going to rain down upon our lives. I mean, those were their expectations. The problem was their current situation did not live up to their expectations. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Maybe you have some grand expectations about how things or maybe your life should look like right now, and yet your life is not measuring up to your expectations. Maybe you even have some grand expectations about Christmas in this season this year. I know I keep telling my wife that I really like and I'm enjoying the ages of our kids right now. We've got Parker, who's 11, Mason, who is 9, and Avery, our little girl, who's 7. And we're beyond the days of diapers. We don't have to worry about car seats so much anymore. Uh, Our our kids can kind of stick with us. uh, Yet at the same time, they're kids, and so we can still do family stuff. And, and so I, I'll just be honest, I had some great expectations of what Christmas would look like this year uh, for us in the Goodlit household, just because of the, the stage of life where we are. Uh, one of those expectations was how great it was going to be this year to do our Christmas tree, because uh, our kids are kind of at that stage where they can help out. And so in, in our home we kind of have some traditions when it comes to our Christmas tree. We get a live tree. The boys and I put the Christmas tree in the stand. My wife Erica has a particular way she likes to do the lights, so she does the lights the way she wants them and and then the kids go ahead and put all the ornaments on and voila, there's the good lit family Christmas tree. And so everything started well enough. We went to uh, one of our favorite holiday locations, Lowe's, and we went there and <laughs> and we pick out our, our live tree. And this year, my expectations are big, so I splurged for a bigger tree. I mean, the kind of tree that won't fit in the van, you had to strap it to the top of the man van, and uh, and there, and there we are with a tree on top, we're riding back home, and the kids are very excited, and they're saying, Mom, Dad, can we decorate and finish the tree tonight? It was a school night, and I said, you know, there's a lot of us, and if we all work together and everybody behaves, sure enough, we can get this tree done tonight. So we pull into our driveway, the van doors swing open, and and the kids just run out full force, so excited. In fact, two of them ran into each other, and my daughter Avery busted right above her eyebrow, and my wife had to go see if she needed stitches. The night was done. (laughs) My boys and I, we went ahead, quietly put the tree in the tree stand, and it was time for bed. So we said, we'll do it the next day. So the next day, uh, I pick up the kids. My wife has to work late that evening. And, but she tells me, she says, you know, I, I went ahead earlier today and I put the lights in the tree. However, because it's a bigger tree, we need, you need to go pick up some more lights. We ran out of lights. I said, no problem. I'll take the kids. We'll go to the store. We'll get lights. So that's what I did. As I'm driving home from the store with our uh, new strands of Christmas lights, the, be, the kids begin to inform me that, Dad, hey, those multicolored Christmas lights you bought... They have the purple light in them, and the multicolor lights on our tree do not have the purple light in them, and you can't take multicolor lights with the purple light and mix and match them with multicolor lights with the non-purple lights. That will ruin Christmas. We need to come up with something else. <laughs> so we come up with a plan. I say, well, well we, we've already put Christmas lights in the bushes in the front of our house, and I'm pretty sure there's some strands in there that don't have the purple light, so how about we take some strands out of the bushes that don't have the purple light in them, and we swap them out with the purple light bushes or strands in the bushes. And we take the non-purple light multicolored strands and put them in the Christmas tree. Are you with me so far? You got this. All right, all right. It's a great plan. All right. So, so we get home right away. The boys and I start de-lighting the Christmas bushes. All right. And my my daughter Avery goes into the house. After a while, I go in to check on her, see what she's doing, and. And I walk in, and there she is beside the Christmas tree, and she has taken out half the lights off the Christmas tree, and they're just laying on the ground. Avery, what are you doing? Turns out she had the plan backwards. (laughs) All of a sudden, she realizes that she had the plan backwards, and she didn't actually help like she thought she was helping, and so she runs upstairs crying. And so I'm about to try and console her, when all of a sudden I hear the boys yelling outside. So I run outside to see what's going on, turns out, as Parker was pulling a strand of lights from the bush, the strand broke, it sparked, and all the lights went out. <laughs> so uh, we take the time to find the lights that still work, console the kids, we delight the bushes, we put the purple light, multi-strands in the bushes, we take the non-purple strands, and we, we bring it to the tree. My wife gets home, I explained to her why there's Christmas lights on the floor around the tree, she... <laughs> She patiently puts the lights back in the tree. The tree is lit. It's a half hour before bedtime. And we tell the kids, all right, you can put the ornaments on the tree. And for a moment in time and space, it looks like the picture I had in my brain, my expectations of what decorating the Christmas tree would be like. They're laughing. They're telling stories. They're getting along. We had a lot of ornaments. They're putting them on the tree. And that half hour just flies by. And I look at my wife, and, uh, and we decide together, the kids are behaving so well right now. Let's let them stay up. The tree is almost done. Let's let them stay up and just finish decorating the Christmas tree. And it was at that moment that our tree fell over. <laughs> <laughs> ornaments are rolling around the ground. Some lights, I'm sure we broke. There's water everywhere. I look at the kids, and I say, Go to bed. I don't know how your life is, but my life doesn't often add up to my expectations. And that's the problem in Malachi. You've got God's people that think their life should look a certain way right now. However, it doesn't. And so it starts to cause problems for them. And the first problem that God's people experience is simply this. They lose their passion. They lose their passion. It's not that they they stop worshiping God. In fact, I mean, 100 years prior, they're crying out to God, God, deliver us. They're very passionate about God. God delivers them. They're back in the land. He's blessed them, but they just kind of take his blessings for granted. In fact, they're still going to the temple and they're still going to the church and they're still worshiping God, but they're kind of doing it half-heartedly. They've lost their passion. You know, you can still do the work of the Lord and be disconnected from the Lord of the work. And that's what's happening right there. And so, as we read this text in Malachi, let me just encourage us this morning, let us not read this text religiously. In other words, let's not look at this text and go, man, it's a shame that people back then just took God for granted. Man, it's a shame that, that he gave them blessings and they just acted like it was nothing and just went about their way and just went about their worship without passion. Let's not look at it and be disappointed there. Let's not read it religiously. Let's read it repentantly. Because it still happens with God's people right here, right now, today. Now, you can tell there's a strain in the, in the, between God and his people through the text of Malachi. Because the, keep, the people keep pelting God with questions. There's nothing wrong with questions in a relationship, but they're, they're more questions that sound like accusations. It's, it's like when your wife says, Are you sure you want to wear that outfit in public today? You know, or, or, are you okay with that decision you just made? It's, it's not so much it sounds like a question, it sounds like an accusation. And that's what's going on in the book of Malachi. So let's just start chapter 1, verse 1. Here's a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord. Right away, God's look, like, let me just start off by saying, I love you. Let's just start there. But God's people's response is, How? How have you loved us, God? We don't think you have loved us very much. Very accusatory question. God, how can you say you love me? And what you find out in the later text is this is their issue. How can you say you love me, God, when so-and-so over there has more stuff than me? That's their issue. So-and-so over there, I know you gave me this stuff, but they have more stuff. In fact, so-and-so over here, I don't like them, and yet you have seemed to bless them more than you bless me right now. They're my enemy, and yet they seem to flourish. They don't even follow you, God. They do evil, and yet you still seem to allow them to flourish. And here, at least I got the title that I'm your person, and I've only got this amount of stuff. How can you say you love me when you let that go on over there? In fact, people still today wrestle with this, don't you? How could a loving God allow evil to exist and seem to flourish? And we have all sorts of world philosophies that where we try and figure this one out, one of, which, one of which would be atheism. In other words, there is no God, so that's why evil exists. There's no one to stop it. Or there's deism, and deism would teach, well, there is a God, but he's kind of like your dad who abandoned you uh, shortly after you were born, doesn't write you any cards or letters, doesn't really want anything to do with you. In other words, there is a God, but he doesn't really care about you, so he doesn't really care how much evil you deal with. And then there's monism, and monism is the idea that God is equally good and equally evil. He is yin and he is yang, and the problem with that, is it's hard to love a God who's also evil. And then there's the Christian theology, which says there is a God, he does love you, he's just not done with evil yet. He doesn't like it any more than you do. In fact, he has a plan for it. And in Malachi, that's what he tells his people. He says, look, those evil people, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes. And then you'll say, great is the Lord. God's saying, I don't like evil. And guess what? Sin never works out. There will be a punishment. There will be a price. You'll probably get to see it. And then you'll realize how great I am. And sometimes we go, that's great you have a plan for evil, God, but why don't you just destroy it all now? Why don't you just get rid of all evil and destroy it right now? But the problem with that idea is that if God was to destroy all evil right now, that means he takes out all the people who have evil inside of them right now too. It's kind of like when we go, God, I hate cancer. Why don't you just destroy and get rid of all cancer? But the problem with that is if you destroy cancer right now, you also get rid of all the people who currently have cancer inside of them. And that's not God's plan. God says, no, no. What I'd rather do is take the cancer out and remove it so that it may die, but my people might live. What I want to do is is get that sin and, and get that evil out of their lives so that the sin and evil may die, but my people might live. God says, you don't want a great destroyer. What you need is a great physician. And a great physician is going to have to take some time. No worries, I got a plan. And the people begin to lose their passion. But then it takes a step further. They start losing their honor. God says, You're dishonoring me, and you're dishonoring yourself. And, of course, the people ask, well, God, why would you say that? How could you say we dishonor you, God? And God says, okay, how about for starters? When you offer blind animals for sacrifice to me, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Hey, try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept accept you, says the Lord Almighty? In other words, God's getting on his people because they're offering him sloppy seconds. He's going, you dishonor me, you dishonor yourselves. Because some of you are coming in here, this, here today and instead of bringing me a tithe, you're leaving me a tip. So, some of you, you, you went ahead and you saw all the junk you couldn't sell at your garage sale. And then you said, let's donate that to the church. So some, some of you, you go, it's okay if it's mediocre because it's just God. It's just this church. And then God cracks a joke. He says, well, why don't you try that with your government? Why don't you try and tell the IRS this year that you know you owe them money, but you're not going to pay it all? Why don't you go into a court of law and, said, and say, you know what? I really don't want to do the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I, I'd like to leave a couple of lies in there if that's all right. Try shortchanging your boss and see how that helps. And God says, and I'm greater than all of those. Yeah. That's right. And you're my people. So why would you treat me anything than anything less? You represent me, and your gifts represent how you honor me. God's furious about it. In fact, he goes a step further. I like this verse. God says, hey, because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your face the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it, and then you'll know that I have sent you this warning. You think if you've got feces on your face, you'll know something happened here. I don't remember this one in Sunday school. You know, there was Noah's Ark. There was David and Goliath. I don't remember the poop on your face story uh, with God. But it's in there. And God's going, what do I got to do to get your attention? How about I let you see how it feels to get your crappy gifts? How about that? Let's see if you remember now. God's furious. He's going, how dare you show me dishonor? And how dare you show dishonor to yourself? They lost... Their passion, they lost their honor, and it's gone so far that they lose their morals. They lose their morality. And the people ask again, what do you mean, God? How have we lost our morality? And God starts by saying, well, let's start with some of your pastors, some of your leaders, some of your elders, some of the the people you you consider good church people. He says, you know what? They know the Bible, but they're not teaching some parts, and and they're leaving some parts out, or they're adding some parts to it, and I'm not cool with that. And he says, you know what else? He said, you, you keep coming to me you know, with, with your sacrifices and you're wondering, why am I not blessing you? Why am I not pouring blessings down upon you? He says, I'll tell you why. He says, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. In other words, God said, there's no need for you to come up in here, and tell me how much you love me when you're spending your week hating on your spouse. No, no sense in, in bringing me a gift and an offering. When you're back home and she's in one room and you're in another room looking at a screen and you're putting things into your mind, into your heart and neglecting her, there's no, no reason to tell me you love me when you're out gossiping about your man and disrespecting him to other people. God says, if you want to honor me, if you want to love me, then you need to love those that I gave to you. And I'm not okay with anything less. He says, And another thing. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied you, God? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he is pleased with them. Or saying, Where is the God of justice? In other words, You're taking your sin, You're taking your evil, And you're rationalizing it. You're saying that wrong and right are relative. In other words, if so-and-so does it or everybody's doing it or you feel like doing it, you, you argue that it must be okay when you know that's not my will for your life. And so you say one thing and you do another. There's a famous author named Brandon Manning who once said, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips yet walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. God says, you want to know why there's evil in the world? Because you keep bringing it in. And you're supposed to be my people. And people are supposed to look at you and want to draw closer to me. Yet when they look at you, they don't want to have anything to do with me. And I'm not cool with that. You see, God's people had a lot of issues. Had a lot of problems then. And God's people today still we have got a lot of issues. We've got a lot of problems. As Malachi brings all those problems to the honest surface, he really only has one solution for us this morning. It starts with a messenger in chapter 3. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, we know that back then it was customary for... Uh, Eastern kings, to before they would visit a place, they would send ahead of them a messenger. And the messenger's job was to clear any obstacles off the path, was to go ahead and prepare the people so, for the king to arrive, so that when the king would arrive, he could simply focus on his work. And, and what Malachi tells us in the next chapter is that there will be this messenger. In fact, he will, be, he will be like a second coming of Elijah the prophet. In fact, Jesus will quote Malachi later on, and he will say, John the Baptist was this messenger. That John the Baptist prepared the hearts of the people, that he prepared the way so that Jesus could come along and actually deliver the message. So there's one messenger who will prepare the way for the other messenger who will deliver the great message. It says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and the me- he's the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. I want to just camp out on this verse for a moment. If you get to that word suddenly in the Hebrew... It doesn't mean immediately. It means unexpectedly. Without fanfare. Like a babe in a manger in a stable in a small forgotten town. it says, And he is the Lord who is coming. This is the proper name of God. In other words, what it's saying is, God himself will come to deliver this message. And he will come into his temple. Which is really significant. You see, King David's son Solomon built the Lord's temple where the presence of God there existed within the Holy Holies for the Jewish people. The problem was when the people fell, along, fell away from God that God allowed the Babylonians to come in. And what the Babylonians did is they destroyed that temple. And they took the Jews out of their homeland and brought them to Babylon. And then they cried out to be released and God listened to them. And so they go back in their land and they rebuild. And so by this time in Malachi's day, they have rebuilt the foundations of the temple. And when Ezra tells about them showing off the foundations of this temple, it says all the young people cheered and celebrated and all the older people cried and wailed because they remembered how good Solomon's temple looked. And this was a second hand rate version. And then what happens is 400 years later, as Kurt preached last week, King Herod comes along and he puts a bunch of money into making the temple glorious and great again. Not because he loved the Lord, but because he was trying to earn the favor of the people. But that means 400 years later, the Lord's temple stood so that Jesus could walk in and out of it and fulfill every messianic prophecy about this Messiah entering and exiting the Lord's temple. And then when he ascends up to heaven, 40 years later, the Romans come in and destroy the temple of the Lord, and it's never been rebuilt since. In fact, all that's standing there today is a remnant of an outer wall. The Muslims call it the wailing wall, because when the Jews approach it, it sounds like they're crying, probably because that's what they have left. And without a temple, there is no Messiah there doesn't need to be a temple anymore because the Messiah already came. See, God doesn't need the temple to exist anymore because Jesus already fulfilled those prophecies and no one can come after him and claim those prophecies because they can't fulfill them. And God doesn't need us to worship in the old way that we used to. God has a bringer of a new covenant, a whole new way to connect with God. And it no longer has to do with a place. It has everything to do with a person. He's the bringer of the new covenant. You see, there's something in the Christian narrative that stands out among all other world religions. You see, every world religion will, will acknowledge there's this, even this higher plane of existence or this higher being somewhere there, and we're down here. And maybe we can live enough good lifetimes to, to kind of get our way there. Maybe we could follow the five pillars of Islam and Allah have mercy, and, and maybe we could try and get our way up there. But the Christian narrative is the only one that says God loved us enough to look down upon us and say, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get here, so let me come down and be with you. And we'll be together. And when all this is wiped away, we'll still be together now and for eternity. That's the Christian narrative. God with us. I don't know how many problems you got today, how many questions, how many doubts, but I do know the one answer is still the same answer, and that's Jesus. Doesn't matter the list of your issues. Doesn't matter the list of your problems. Malachi says, there's still only one answer. And his name's Jesus. He's who you're longing for. And he's coming. He says this, when he gets here, he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. I don't know if you're familiar or not with the silversmith's method of refining silver. They take a container, they, they put in what just looks like messed up rocks. It doesn't look like anything shiny or like it could be anything, but they realize it has to go through a process. And part of this process, they heat, heat up these, these elements to a certain temperature. And as it heats up, you begin to see this liquid uh, molten silver-looking, uh, molten, whatever you call it, molten metal, and as they heat it up, what happens is the impurities rise to the surface. And the silversmith will skim off the top of the impurities, removing them from the rest of the silver. Until And he'll, they'll know it's pure because the silversmith can see his reflection within the silver that's left behind. And then Malachi says, this is what he will do for us. He will take us through a process that will... Through this process, our impurities, our sin, it will rise to the top. We can't deny it. In fact, we might as well confess it. But if you'll let him, he will remove it from you so that only his reflection remains. This is what the messenger will do. This is what the answer to your problem will do. This is the solution you've been looking for. In fact, it says that that he will give you a reason to continually celebrate victory. The text goes on and says, he's going to re- redirect your course. If you feel lost, if you've lost your passion, if you've lost your honor, maybe you feel lost in your sin, that he can redirect your course. He can redefine and refine your faith. He can even restore your family. Lately, I've been watching with my family several Christmas movies. Movies like Elf, The Santa Claus. We watched that new one on Netflix, The Christmas Chronicles. And, and I noticed there's this running theme, and it's the same throughout these movies. And it's this idea uh, of human beings having to hurry up and save Christmas. And, and this idea that we gotta help Santa, we gotta get these things in order, things are out of order, we gotta get, have all these elements to line up so that we can save Christmas. And, and, and I think sometimes that becomes our narrative, especially this time of year, where we start thinking we gotta save Christmas. <laughs> we got cards to write. we got lights to put on trees and bushes. we got elves to move around. We've got all sorts of things we got to buy and make sure they show up on time. And all of a sudden, we're running around trying to save Christmas. We'll, we'll spend so much time trying to make Christmas meaningful for everyone else that we lose the very meaning of Christmas. And let me just tell you this morning that if you have lost your passion somewhere there, if you've lost your honor, maybe you feel lost in your sin, Maybe you've been running around like crazy trying to save Christmas. Let me just tell you this year. This year, you don't have to save Christmas. This year, you need Christmas to save you. There's a story that's been shaping my own Christmas season this year. It involves a friend of mine. His name's Todd Baldwin. And Todd and I, we were roommates in college. We went to a small college in East Tennessee together. We, we lived together, we worked several jobs together, we went on tour in a band together, we, we had a radio show together, we were often called into the dean's office together. <laughs> uh, and, uh, well, Todd was there at the school, he met Emily, who became his wife, and uh, I got to be best man in their wedding. Um, he was best man in my wedding, his wife Emily act- actually introduced uh, my wife, Erica, to me, he thought we would be a great match. Uh, they currently live in Kentucky. Uh, Todd has since got his PhD. He's an elder in a church, which I just think is funny because I know Todd. <laughs> and Emily, she's been a, a teacher for a number of years in the public school system there. They got two boys, Aiden and Keenan. Aiden's 13, Keenan's 10. And it was a little over two weeks ago that their life completely changed. Emily went to the ER because she was, wasn't feeling well. And within 24 hours, they admitted her to the ICU because she was having acute liver failure. For some reason, a 40-year-old woman, no health issues, took great care of herself. And, and, and yet, in this moment, Emily's liver was dying, which meant she was dying. The prayer requests went out. My family, we, we prayed fervently. For Emily Baldwin, uh, as the prayer requests kept coming out they they uh, there were all these things that needed to line up they you know she got put on the liver transplant list, and they needed to find a donor that was a good match that was healthy um, it had to be the right timing with the right team and we just kept praying, and we watched as these elements began to line up all up until the, the point where she was about to go in for surgery to receive a liver transplant. As I was talking to Todd and he was recapping the events that had taken place, uh, he told me, he said, he said, they told me that only one person was allowed to go back in her room right before surgery. He said, so, so I being her husband, I walked up to the security cameras and waved to them and they unlocked the door. And then I waved 14 people in from our church <laughs> to come in. The medical staff tried to stop us, but I said, no, we're going to pray for my wife. He said, it was four in the morning, and 14 people from our church surrounded her bed. Todd told me, he said, I I couldn't get any words out. All I could say is, God, save her. He said, "But, but the people in my church, he said, they prayed, and they prayed hard. And Emily survived that surgery. And three more after that. She's alive today. Todd told me, he said, I know a lot of the doctors that are working on her. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in God. He said, but they also can't explain to me why my wife is alive right now. And all they know is we prayed. He said, I don't know what tomorrow brings, but I'll take the miracle I have today. I, I don't know how chaotic your life may feel right now how many things may need to line up in order for it to go the way you think it should go. I don't know what you're bringing to the table. I don't know if you've got questions. I don't know if you got doubts. I don't know if you've got sin that is putting a heavy shadow upon your life this Christmas season. But what I do know is that the solution is the same. There's only one solution, and it's Jesus. And there's power when you meet him in prayer. So that's how we're going to close today. I'm going to close this in prayer, but as I do that, I want to invite our prayer partners to come forward. And it doesn't have to stop there. If you've never made the decision to let Jesus be the silversmith in your life, to to remove those impurities that sin from your life so that only his reflection remains, I'm going to challenge you to do that with our prayer partners today, to let them celebrate that decision with you and let Jesus become Lord and Savior of your life. And for the rest of you, if you feel lost this Christmas season, maybe you've lost some of that passion. Maybe you've lost some of your honor. Maybe you feel lost in sin. The answer is still the same. He will be waiting to meet with you in prayer. And you can meet him this morning. Come down. Bring whatever you got. Bring whatever you got. It doesn't matter the list. Still one answer. Jesus. Father God thank you Lord you uh, you say we can bring it all and lay it at the feet of Jesus and so that's what we do right now God we need Jesus to save us from whatever's going around with us Whatever's going on in the world around us. Lord, we ask. We ask that you would meet us here. That you would remove the impurities from our life. You would remove the distractions so we could be a people who are passionate about you. A people who honor you, God. A people who live a life that shows who we love. Lord, I lift up Todd and Emily Baldwin in, in prayer and God, as I know, they'll probably be spending Christmas in the hospital. I want to ask that it's not in the ICU. And that you'll continue to heal her and move her forward and protect their family. God, I pray for anybody else in here who's dealing with some catastrophe, some unmet expectations. And I pray that you would move. There's not much we can do, but we know how much you can do, God. So we leave it in your hands this morning thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas.